Welcome aboard the USS Aeronome. To become a member of our crew, please visit perfectorganism.com slash support. As a patron of Perfect Organism, you'll receive exclusive perks and early access to content. Incoming audio transmission received. Please proceed to Subdeck 3 to begin playback. Thank you, and welcome aboard. I think we ought to discuss the bonus situation. Right. Brett and right. I, we think we ought to, we deserve full shares, right, right baby? You see, Mr. Park and I feel that the bonus situation is... Move! Get out of there! George, move! Dad! Move, Dad! Move, Dad! Get out! I feel the strongest thing is always if it happened in your body or in someone's body. That's enormous. A worm, a worm in some, yeah, a worm in, in, a, in a living body. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's just under the skin and you see how it moves. Ooh, oh, oh. Yeah, I, I hate worms and snakes and things like that. I, it's awful. Ooh. Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host Patrick and co-owner. Green. What up, man? Patrick. How you doing? I'm doing great, and I'm super and... pumped that we have a very special guest this evening. Yes, introduce him. This is Majid Shana. And he... Perfect pronunciation. <laughs> well, I've been working on it quite a bit. Uh, Maj, as we call him, uh, is a, uh, a longtime fan of both Alien and the show and has been writing in with great comments and emails and uh, active in Building Better Worlds. And we figured um, what better time than now to have him come on and introduce himself to us. So let's kick it off to you, man. What's your what's your background? How'd you get an alien? <clears throat> Hello, everyone. Um, I'm super psyched to be on the show. Thank you guys for having me. It was like really flattering that you guys uh, reached out. Um, so with Alien... To go back, it's like sort of like it's almost like where do I begin? Because it's one of those things that feels like it was with you forever. I think the furthest back I can trace it is I asked my dad once when I was really young because he he used to like movies, watch a lot of movies. I like movies, and I asked him, "What's the scariest movie you've ever seen? What was, um, you know, what scared you the worst?" And like almost with no hesitation, he was like, alien. And I was like, what is that? And he immediately uh, spoiled the chestburster scene. And he was like, this happens in it. And I was like, oh, God, uh, that sounds horrible. And he just like, he's like, yeah, it, it messed me up for like a week. And just like the look on his face of, of like such authenticity, I was like, oh, my God, it really like affected him. So it was always it always lived in my mind as like the scariest movie ever and i was like someday maybe i'll 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 have the stones to watch it because i was a really frightened child as a kid and i just like i couldn't even watch any horror or anything until like i was like a teenager but 
I did watch Alien when I was like 12 or something on in the middle of the day with all the windows open with my dad in the living room. So I'm like, all right, here we go. Uh, We're going to watch it. I'm going to be okay. It's going to be fine. So we're watching it. And what I wasn't told is that like this movie is like kind of like a kid's dream, at least most of it. Like it starts out like that score, those horns are like inviting and warm in a way. And like it's creepy, but it's also like, you know, it has hallmarks of things I recognize like Star Wars or whatever. So um and you know the the crew is 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 fun to watch them watch their back and forth and whatever. So so I'm into it, but it's hanging over me the whole time. The chestburster scene, it's coming, it's gonna happen. What is is it? How bad is it gonna be? Am I gonna freak out? Am I gonna run out of the room? So I'm just like so dialed in, and my dad's like falling asleep on the couch. And um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what he didn't tell me was about like everything else, including like the space jockey scene. So I'm like. So when that happens, I am like, I was totally like flabbergasted. And I remember telling my friend later, like, hey, man, you ever seen Alien? And he was like, yeah, Alien rocks. And I was like, what What was that thing in the room in the chair? What was going on with that? And he was like, oh, that they call that the space jockey. And I was like, oh, that was totally amazing. So so anyway, back to my viewing. So we're like, I'm watching, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. And then it finally happens. It's not so bad. I can handle it. I'm not going to die of fright. And now I'm in. Now I'm like, okay, we're past the worst of it, and this is so cool. So I'm super into it. So I watched that and really enjoyed it. And then I kind of, I didn't go back to much alien stuff for a while until I was maybe like, I don't know, uh, maybe 12 or something. And I was at my cousin's house, and Resurrection was on HBO or something, and they put it on. And um, and that was still way above my pay grade in terms of like you know uh, gross out stuff i was just like so not ready for it and i was like oh this makes me feel bad <laughs> and um and and from then on for a while i was just like oh man yeah those alien movies are really scary they've really freaked me out it, like even like the ripley 7 thing really freaked me out initially because you know it's this deformed clone and there's a boob there and i'd only ever seen so many boobs on tv by that point <laughs> not in that context <laughs> yeah and it's but like still it, like it's, it's kind of hot like I'm not, i don't know how to process this i'm 12 <laughs> yeah i'm like looking at my cousin I'm like help me and um, she's got like a vag in her chest yeah, so, so all that, and then she's saying like literally looking herself in the face saying kill me that was pretty heavy and then they do it and they and then she tortures her and then she's like writhing and stuff. So that's all like really making me want to run out of the room. But then just like the dark, dark humor, the nihilism of like John or whatever being like, Oh, it's a fucking waste of ammo, man. I was like, I, uh, I can't. And then the newborn thing totally wigged me out. So for a while I was like, those alien movies seem pretty amazing, but I don't think I can watch them. But, um, but then I eventually did get to all of them, but I do, Man, I'm rambling. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> but, don't worry uh, about it, man. It, it's it's actually it's it's fun because we don't we don't typically spend that much time on the evolution of our early journeys with these movies. Yeah. And I think it's something that a lot of us go through to a degree, which is like you're kind of afraid of it, and then I yeah. think that fear kind of taps into which we're going to get into tonight. It kind of taps yeah. into something deeper that intrigues you, mm-hmm. and that mix that mixture of why am I attracted to this? Yes. 
and why am I afraid of it? And why why are both of those things cohabitating inside me? I think is something yeah. that a lot of us can relate I would to. Even, exactly. I would even feel that like when I would want to do a little dive on it and I'd go on the internet and search for alien stuff and then I'm like reading about it. And even the reading about stuff made me scared and kind of sick, but in a way of like can't look away. But that resurrection viewing, I really resent because it really dulled the impact when I saw aliens. And I was like, oh, and, and of course, all the other media that rips off aliens. Oh, I felt man. like you I saw was... resurrection before aliens. Dude, yeah, I know. Oh, I, now dude. it's like, get him off the show. You saw the, you saw the film that ruined the franchise before the other two. Well, to be fair, though, <laughs> Jamie saw it 44 times in the theaters. So I did. Keep that in mind. Seven times in the theater. Wow. What, when did you realize you didn't like it? Uh, well, I was 21 at the time, and it was probably so after it left the theater, and I was I wrote like a whole feature length script, including Cole and Ripley, and after I finished that script, I was like, this script sucks. Right? Like, and then I started a new one, and I realized this movie isn't good. I was trying to. You know, because I killed mm. off John and Reese, I didn't kill him off. I, I got rid of him right away. They go onto the earth, and then it's just call some great things about it. Um, but wait, what what, what happened? Wrote, what happened to them in the beginning in your script? Uh, to John and Reese, yeah. Uh, you hear gunshots and they're killed. Um, and, <laughs> off screen. <laughs> yeah, off screen, and then the military onto the onto Earth, and um, the military greets them and they take Ripley because they know what she is to a holy day, and they take call. Because she's got all this information in her someplace else, no, in like a like a bunker to, to to stay together. But in the same bunker is another version of Ripley that they'd also been working on, um, mm. and and she can speak, but she's all deformed and elongated and crazy gross. So, anyways, she that's a, a visible boot that would have been scary. Uh, and I did not describe that. Oh well, she she should. <laughs> anyways, that's why it was a bad script. I mean. <laughs> um, <laughs> But thanks for um, coming on, man. And 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 you and you've been listening a, for uh for for a while now, and and you participate a lot in building yeah. better worlds. Um, uh, that's something that I think is so. If you have any, if you want to pitch building better worlds to anybody who might not be in it, how how would you describe it? The the fan group. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty awesome. It's like a big old you know kind of a think tank and and love fest a lot of the times. You know, like I I mostly post when I and I have an idea that I just like, I want to turn to the person next to me and say, but I can't. So I'm like, let me get on the group and, and say this and see what people think. And, um, you know, of course it's fun seeing, I love when people disagree with me too. And, and then I have to like go back and think about it. Um, but now that there's been, um, all these films, including the prequels, there's just like so much to chew on, but the, um, the group itself, it's always super constructive and, um, and also the stuff people uh, post, like, really, um, what's the word? Not esoteric, but, like, um, just, like, weird alien ephemera that people put up. And, like, um, it, it's a good place to learn about alien. It's a great place to talk about alien. Um, and uh, I wonder sometimes if... Uh, if uh, Disney is, is looking at it so they can get some Well, ideas. they might be looking at it now. And... With our relationship with Fox, uh, and we've kind of created some really great ties with the VP of franchises, with a lot uh -huh. of people who work kind of on the Alien IP, they could be. I mean, they listen to the show. In fact, uh, Steve Zerlin, who invited me to Fox, said, hey, I've been listening to your show. So they're listening. Um, but tonight we're here to talk about 
H.R. Giger. And I think, Patrick, it's a good idea to kind of get a little bit of a lightning round just with us three first visceral reactions to his work. Like what goes through your mind? Um, let's start with you, Patrick. Beautiful. Really? Interesting. That's the, yeah, before, mm-hmm. dis- before, dis- before Disturbing, before Xenomorph XX121, before Sexual. I'm just going to go through every other adjective so you guys can't say anything. Before any of those other things. Wake honestly, me up when you're done. <laughs> honestly, beautiful is the first thing I think of. I think it's beautiful. Um, I think since um since I was staring at a lot of Giger artwork right before um you know past few days in preparation for this and rewatching the film, I think a lot of uh, the thing that jumps out as me jumps out at me is like um material and like the tactile nature it feel, it, it feels like when you look at that you can kind of get a feeling of what everything would feel like on your fingertips in a way and it just feels so um I don't know very very uh uh touchable I'm I'm losing words but <laughs> that's that's what I feel is is um very tactile tactile interesting I would say for me it's dangerous and confliction like, I don't know how to feel about it. I don't know how I should yes. respond to it. And part of it is my religious upbringing. Um, mm. Like, sex is bad and all that stuff that I've left behind. But still, my first reaction is, is this okay? Like, is this, what is this? What am I looking at here? Um, is this fantasy? Is this brutalism? Is this rape? Is this, because mm. a lot of the women in his pictures look like they're really enjoying themselves, you know? Um, but it's also just not women. It's a lot of phallic symbols going into orifices, but they also look like spaceships and they also look like buildings. They also look like rocks and formations. So I don't, so kind of it turns you on a little bit, but also times it makes you sick. So it's, it's a weird series of, uh, emotions to feel about, about art. Something that I noticed with Giger's work is because so many of us were introduced to it as kind of young people before we'd really had much of a sexual awakening, I feel like the the sexual revulsion of it uh, is a little bit lost on me. Like, it's something that intellectually I can understand and I can I can feel uncomfortable about. But I feel like a lot of people can, can sort of barely look at it without feeling nauseous. And it, and it makes me wonder what how different it was for somebody sitting in that audience in 1979 who didn't know his work who hadn't been in you know the in surrealist circles or haven't had, had no idea that, that kind of art was even out there and we're just going into a movie theater and seeing something like that that was that viscerally evocative for the very first time with no context or no paradigm to view it through i feel like that would have been very different and so i think part of why beautiful is the first thing i can think of is because for me that's the more visceral thing in spite of the horror and the obvious repulsiveness of some of his art, the beauty for me is the thing that is the most um, sort of uh, all-encompassing. I agree. That's actually something I was thinking about um, to touch on both yours and Jamie's point is because um, for this last viewing, um, most recently before the show, I was trying to really yeah divorce my uh, myself from all my previous thoughts and you know all the extra material all the information about alien and really pretend that i'd never seen anything heard of it and giger and none of it 
and really pretend to be my dad in 79 because he walked into the theater with his friend not knowing a thing about it. I asked him, I was like, well, did you, you know, did your friend say, you got to see this movie, an alien pops out of the guy's chest? He's like, no, I had zero idea. So <laughs> I, I think the reason there's that attraction revulsion that the confusion that Jamie was talking about is because it presents you with something that's that's like ambiguous enough for you to think that you've imposed that sexuality onto it and then you feel dirty and then you have to suppress that and push it back down and and that's uh and I think that's why you're like you know the thing pops out and you know it doesn't overtly look like a penis so when your mind goes there you're like oh what am I thinking let me just uh, uh, put that away and then mm. and then you just have this dirty lingering feeling um I think that might have something to do with it. What do you guys think? Well, I think part of it might be uh, just in terms of what we're just talking about right now, Giger's art. Um, if you do like it, like, okay, say, oh, wow, look at that. that. I really love that. Well, why do you love it? And then you're like, oh, should I not like it? Should I like it? What does it mm-hmm. say about me if I like it? So it's confliction. It's like, um, because it's, I think it's also fantasy. Um, but at the same time, it's nightmare. Um, I think we've all had had wet dreams or or sex dreams, and they don't look like that. Um, there's a, a just a sense of kind of BDSM to it, um, and it's just it's so many different things. Um, and it is there's a it's definitely really erotic, um, and there's a, a a large component of arousal um, to it that when you look at it, it's there's it's somewhat arousing. And so for me, that becomes alarming. Like, well, what am I responding to? Why am I responding it to right. to it that way? So, but I think at the same time it's great art because it's making you kind of question everything, which I think we should. Um, and but it's also making us question our sexuality uh, in every sense, not just an orientation, but well, what's turning you on about this image? You know, is it this thing that looks like it's going inside of a, an orifice? Is that turning you on, or is the you know like all of those things? Like I ask myself those questions, um, and it's. At the same time, you're almost kind of like your skin crawls like, well, I don't like I don't I don't know what to think. But then, you know, as we move on to the alien itself, you see much of that phallic uh, symbol that that's evident in all of uh, Giger's work come to life in the head of the beast um, and just the way it moves and its tail. Um, so now that phallic symbol is now a threat um, to us. It, it's not it. If I kind of go a little bit deeper here, you know, in terms of like the sex act of, you know, you have the way our reproductive cycle has, you know, you have your sperm and you have your egg and it all. So there's this this idea that both uh, genitals kind of colliding can produce offspring, whereas with the alien, this thing that looks like a big penis brings death. So it's it kind of turns it's on its head. It's it's very interesting. It's a lot to process. It does, but it's funny as you're saying that I'm picturing like something that like just like a literal big penis walking around killing people. <laughs> I think what's so cool about his artwork is that it without being although sometimes it is explicit, but without always being that explicit, it can cause us to like it's almost like it brings to life these well i mean you know we always talk about it but these subconscious things that we see like these connections that our minds make between objects without literalizing it because what you're seeing when you see the alien stalking somebody on the nostromo you're not actually watching a dick coming after somebody but it's dick like thank god right because that would be a pretty dumb movie it's dick like in ways that are not even just morphological 
it's dick-like in ways that are uh suggest well we're going to get more into this in a bit when we talk about the actual movie but but it, it's also in and you know in Balaji's performance and it's in the proportions of of his body being so elongated and the way that the that the creature is slow and kind of sensual in its movements and it's it's part of this like holistic sexualized terrible thing that um i think something's interesting about you know because we kind of group him in group him in with surrealists because that's that was the movement that he kind of emerged from and a lot of his friends were in the surreal art movement what's interesting about a lot of surreal art is that as opposed to like abstract art or modernism which is really really subjective um surrealist art takes things that are somewhat representational like things that are that you can that you know you can look at and you can say oh that's clearly supposed to be a pipe or that's clearly supposed to be a vulva you know and it does things with these recognizably representational objects that are irrational and subjective and in doing that i think it forces us to wonder what we're actually getting from those objects when we look at them in the first place so when you see dali's elephants for example um the reason why it evokes such strong feelings in people and why i think that's such an iconic image is because we can immediately look at that and we can see things that we recognize you know we can see an elephant we can see long spider-like legs we can see a world in which gravity operates in such a way where that creature would exist theoretically but that combination of things on earth doesn't feel right to us but it feels wrong in very specific ways that make us keep staring at it and trying to figure out what we're looking at and i think that's what's going on with the xenomorph to me i think that that um that back and forth in the confusion that comes from like being turned on and then being repulsed is also like this real balance that he struck in his paintings of uh of like a beautiful pair of w- a woman's lips you know that are, that isn't you know perverted really in any way or or i mean um you know uh mangled or or um modified in any way and then there are these weird you know really otherworldly gross things that are very industrial looking and all that um so he he's packing in all the all this stuff that like you know your eyes are looking at at you know the 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 curves and contours of of this w- w- female ish things hips that that are enticing but then it leads to this huge pipe that it's attached to and it's like it's like these things they're almost like puzzles that that fit together perfectly but you can never take apart in this way and then like you just end up staring at it over and over again like well how could this have been that it almost looks like a human could have been there at one point if you added this then you'd have to remove this oh god that doesn't sound good and then you know it it just it sparks so much imagination because it's a paradox it seems like all of his art is is a paradox and i also think that his art is um a re- response to almost the oppression of religion um where it's it's a garden of earthly delights, uh, kind of, if I can use the, the name of a Bosch painting, um, where it's, it's, we're seeing all of these kind of wonderfully beautiful, dirty, um, even though I don't really like that term because I don't, I think it's dirty. We, we, we say things are dirty, but does that mean that they're bad? Like, what does dirty even mean? And anyway, right. um, that's true. And it's funny because, because saying that about Giger's art feels so inappropriate, doesn't it? Like, it, you, even though we're talking well, just, about it. it being dirty yeah. it's not you know well i just think it uh it does his art a disservice because that word is just so dismissive um mm. but I, I think uh 
throughout art history, you see depictions, even in religious art history, you see depictions of naked people all over. Look at the Sistine Chapel. There's naked people. Of course, they're not engaged in sex sex, but they're very sexualized, very voluptuous women, naked men, a lot of eroticism, homoeroticism, um, everywhere. It's everywhere. And Giger kind of took that one step further. And I think there's also, despite religious history and art history, having a lot of kind of nakedness and sexual um, sexual representation, Giger kind of takes it one step further um, and says, well, you know, what what are our fantasies? What do we dream about? Like, And it's almost like a literal dream where you know, you, you don't really know what's going on. We've all had those dreams where we're waking up and we remember some things and we don't remember other things and we're not trying, we don't really, we can't really make sense of it. And I think a lot of his work is disturbing because we can't make sense of it. And I think that's why the alien is scary because we can't make sense of it. Me and Patrick have just discussed this before. What does it want? What are those paintings trying to tell us? I don't know. That is part of, and we're afraid of what we don't know. And I think that's, a part of the genius. And totally. I, I agree that the word dirty is often uh, reductive, but I will say his art, a lot of it is dirty. And I don't mean dirty in like the, ooh, that's naughty, uh, puritanical way. I mean that there's a patina, it, there's rust, there's, there's oil spills. Like there's this stuff, there's always this question of like, yes, biomechanical, bio, we can say it till we're blue in the face, but it's like, it's really, it's really difficult in some of his paintings to figure out if you're looking at skin, silicone, uh, uh, porcelain, you know, steel, um, and scale, the scale of like, you can never quite tell whether something is huge, like the size of a building or if it's just, if it's much smaller, you know, that, that, that part always fascinates me. Totally. I have a, a quick question for you actually in a second, Maj, uh, based on something you said earlier, but something I want to bring up quickly before that is jamie you mentioned bosch and i think that bosch is a very clear forerunner of not only surrealism as a as a movement but specifically giger and i think that the the garden of earthly delights that the triptych is in is so spiritually aligned with what giger was doing because it's something where if you look at any one part of it it's very clear what's going on like you're seeing people or you're seeing demons or you're seeing somebody being lit on fire <laughs> like you're seeing images that you have a context for but when you look at the ways in which they're interacting with each other and you look at the environment and you zoom out and you look at it as a larger thing it starts to sort of dissolve into something that um i know Madge is going to bring up in, in a little bit but it dissolves into this sort of it's like it's coming from the id it's something that we can't put words to but it makes sense on some level that we don't access and i think part of what's beautifully confusing and confounding about Bosch's art and Giger's art and really good surrealism and Alien is that we have just enough ability to recognize it that we know we do, but we don't have the ability to describe why. And that's where the fear comes in, because it tells us something about ourselves, like you said, Jamie, that we didn't know was there and that we're afraid of. The difference yeah. with Bosch, though, really quick, is you go into that painting, The Garden of Earthly Delights, and it looks like 
this is this like pleasure forest. Like everyone's having sex. It's kind of titillating and you go closer and you go closer and you look at different scenes and then it looks like torture it looks like these people are being tortured and they're being eaten and it doesn't look fun whereas the response giger's response his interpretation is no you want to go up close this character this woman whoever they have a look of pleasure this is pleasurable what's happening um which is different Mm -hmm. and i think a lot it speaks to what religion kind of the message of religion like sex is bad essentially unless you have it unless you've signed a contract it's not a good thing um or as I, I what i love about giger is like no sex is fucking great and uh these are my these are my crazy dreams what are yours So, uh, so he was born in 1940 in Switzerland, in, in the eastern part of Switzerland, and his dad was a pharmacist, and uh, and he was not brought up in an artistic household. He got into art, went to school for it, went into architecture school at the School of Applied Arts, and uh, came out not uh, you know looking to get into film, but just producing art and moving in circles of artists. So um, in a book that has really been hugely influential in my life, that it was one of the first alien books that I got as a kid— uh, which is just called Giger's Alien, um, which is just an amazing book. If, if anybody listening to this doesn't have it, uh, he said he he gives a little bit of a of an introduction to it, and he has this quote that I think is really interesting. Kind of lays out sort of how he got into this in the first place. So I'm going to go ahead and read it. So he says, "Quote: So many people have wondered, how do you get into films? I was lucky. Bob Venosa, a fellow painter who often used to be entertained by the surrealist Salvador Dali." They lived in the same village, Cadique in Spain, had taken my catalog to show him. He asked Dali what he thought of my work. Dali evidently approved of it, for he showed the catalog to the producer Alejandro Jodorowsky, who, in, who intended to film the Dune trilogy, a science fiction novel by Frank Herbert. Venosa told me on the telephone how keen Jodorowsky was on my work. What he told me seemed a good reason for making a journey to Spain. Unfortunately, by the time I got there, Jodorowsky had already left. But later, when I was visiting Paris, I went purely out of curiosity to see him in his office. He clearly still thought he could use me for the Dune designs. When I got back to Zurich, I took, I got some of my ideas down on paper and went to Paris to hand my suggestions over to him in person. Hodorowsky flew to the United States in search of a producer, taking my work and that of some other people. Presumably he had no luck, for I never saw him again. All I had left was the address of another disappointed man. Uh, he was to have the done, done the special effects on Dune, and his name was Dan O'Bannon, the author of Alien. Right? So that's famously how O'Bannon and Hodorowsky got acquainted with one another on the Hodorowsky, on the, uh, uh, sorry, um, O'Bannon and Giger got acquainted with one another on the failed Hodorowsky Dune project, which proved incredibly fertile um, in many creative avenues, but especially Alien bringing together people as dis- as disparate as uh, Ron Cobb and Giger and Dan O'Bannon and uh, uh, Morbius. And yeah, just, it's just absolutely incredible. Anyway, um, the one other thing, this is just an entry from his diary from 1977, from July of 77. And he wrote this down to himself, and I want to read this really quickly. He says, I get an entirely unexpected telephone call from Dan O'Bannon in Hollywood. He speaks very slowly so that in spite of my poor English, I can understand the important things in store for me. He's talking about a new project for a film called Alien. He tells me that when the Dune Project broke down, he went back to Hollywood, and soon afterwards he was very ill. A tiresome stomach trouble. He had Ian, he had lain sick in bed, (laughs) Ian, he had lain sick in bed at the home of his friend Ron Shusett, 
and had still managed to work out the alien story with his friend's help. When he was better, he had written to the SF horror story and made the suggestion that the fearsome alien monster should be created by me. So, uh, and then uh, Brandywine Productions, consisting of Gordon Carroll, David got. David Geiler and Walter Hill were approached to put up the capital for the production of the film. He says he will let me have a letter setting out the main things he would want me to create. Unfortunately, there isn't much money available yet, but enough to advance me $1,000 so that I shouldn't feel that I'd be working for nothing anymore. However, I have first I have to wait for the letter to see whether the whole thing is really going to interest me. We're about half an hour talking on the telephone, and now I wait excitedly to see what will happen next. So that was the very beginning, and um, and what's what's cool too is O'Bannon sent him a, a story outline, which is also in this book, which I'm not going to read, but it shows the very first sort of iteration of what would become, you know, this this the first version of the script, and uh, and Geeker was locked and loaded and ready to go. I always get the feeling from looking at the concept art he did that he was like way into the idea, because um, he would do like these multiple. Uh, I mean, of course, he was getting paid at a certain point, but I, I, I feel like um, it inspired him in a big way. I feel like he, re- he obviously, you know, he turned out some of his best work doing that, and it, it really sparked his imagination, which is um, super fascinating. So Giger, you know, goes to England, he starts working on this thing, um, and early on, uh, Ridley Scott is handed by Dan O'Bannon a copy of, uh, of Giger's Necronomicon, which is a his famous art book that was inspired, or at least um, in name, by the work of uh, Lovecraft. And one of the paintings in particular, which is Necronom 4, um, immediately stuck out to Scott as the one that the creature should be. And it's, it's interesting, because there's been sort of back and forth, partly because Ridley Scott has a hard time keeping his mouth shut <laughs> about certain things. There's been some back and forth about sort of who who was responsible for getting Giger into the project. And, and, I, and I, I want to point out that although Dan O'Bannon was the reason Giger was on this thing, and Dan O'Bannon was the, was the, was the, the driving force behind getting him, um, you know, to England, getting him into the studio and blah, 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 that it was really Scott that insisted that the Xenomorph had to look like Necronom 4. That that was, that was the, the design that stuck out to him as what he thought was most emblematic of the monster. But also, being Ridley Scott, the other criteria that he would not um, put up with was the fact that if they had to redesign a whole new creature, which is what Giger actually wanted to do, that it would have taken too long, and he wanted to get moving on the production. So, something that I think is really cool about um, the, the sort of the unique synchronicity going on here is that you have a lot of weird chance happenings that are then seized upon and uh, end up being really fortuitous. So you have Hodorowski's project falling apart, but O'Bannon kind of randomly being a part of it for special effects, and Giger being a part of it because of Dali, for one, you know. Um, and then you have O'Bannon, who had just done Dark Star and felt like the monster was ridiculous in that movie, wanting a better monster, getting alien greenlit, and then you have Scott coming on board as this kind of unproven director, relatively unproven director, um, and pushing for this one particular thing just partly out of time constraints. And you have Fox, who thought, there's no way we are going to let this insane surrealist artist have full aesthetic control over this motion picture. And somehow O'Bannon and Scott, and one would imagine Brandywine by this point, pushing him so strongly that they really can't do anything about it. And then not only does he get to design the creature, but he gets to, to design 
you know, this planet he gets to, or, or, the, or this, um, you know, moon surface he gets to design, the derelict, he gets to do the space shock, he gets to do the face hug, he gets to chest burst, blah, blah, blah. Um, and he gets to uh, basically determine the entire aesthetic trajectory of this film, and in doing so, defining the aesthetic trajectory of what we think of as science fiction horror. And none of that would have existed if it weren't for this crazy series of weird happenstance situations and of brilliant people making split-second decisions that probably seemed wrong in context at the time, but ended up being so right. What I love about the dichotomy between the darkness of, of Giger um, and his the aesthetics that he brought to Alien, um, then you go on the Nostromo and you go into this kind of womb that's got a lot of like i don't want to say fabric but like cushions in the hallways and this you feel safe you feel at home and then in giger's world um the the planet the derelict it's the opposite of that it's the reaction to that it's the you are not safe and you are alone um and that's and that's kind of like the fear of man to be alone and not you know to be alone on in some place we don't know and not to feel safe and at the genius of his of the way that uh, O'Bannon devised where the alien has come from is it's coming from us. That, 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 that horrible thing, the thing that scares us the most has come from inside of us. Um, and it's analogous to kind of every, the, the worst parts of where we are in history currently, where we have been in history in the past, you know, um, where man has is responsible for the worst parts of who we are. And it was Cain's, uh, curiosity almost like the mythical adam and eve her curiosity that brought about you know, kind of like the the desolation of the nostromo so uh, there's so much going on there and i think giger's work is really um it's it's interesting i mean apart from alien like you you i think his work even though it's conflicting um it's also a celebration of sexuality in some ways but uh it's a it's a kind of a weird celebration but in context of alien it's He's using that, or at least O'Bannon and Ridley Scott and everyone involved in Alien are using that the dark that they see in Giger's work to say, well, this dark is inside of you, and you've just brought it on board. Uh, it's just it's just a fascinating it's a fascinating tale, and uh, just to kind of see it unfold. I like that thought pattern a lot because the fact that the alien planet and the derelict and everything is this like reflection of, you know, the, the darker, you know, the the scarier side of life that, you you know, quote unquote evil, if you want to call it that. Um, and it, it's almost like a harbinger of, of like what's to come of like, they're walking through, like nothing is, um, hospitable. They can't, they, 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 I know that in pre-production or whatever, Someone had the idea that the landing, the Nostromo landing on the planet should be really rough and and not be like this easy thing, that it should it should be traumatic and ruin the ship in a way. Um, and I'm watching and I had that in my head because and I've seen the movie a bunch of times, but I was watching it again and I realized they land it so slow and steady. It's all they're about to they're the the feet are coming down on the planet and then just like boom, 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 like oh, there's a rupture in the hull. Like it's like it's totally just inhospitable so then they're walking through you know they can't even see two feet in front of their face and all this stuff and it kind of ties into something i learned about Giger that i found fascinating that ties in with the alien with the xeno is that um he had a real fascination with guns and weapons and the mechanism and all that and he he just liked guns as objects he did say that once he um you know, had some, some army training and, you know, the world war two and all that, that scared that out of him and he, and he no longer liked guns, but 
obviously the mechanical parts of weapons and stuff are present in his work. And once again, it culminates so perfectly with the Xenomorph because there's even this quote that I wish I could get. I couldn't get it, but um, it's from The Cold Forge, the book by Alex White. Um, that's awesome. He's And I love some of those passages in there where he describes the Xenomorph because it's a hard thing. I don't know. You can describe it just as you see it, but he he really he can capture the the horror and the terror of it. And he basically says that it's almost as if every murderous thought and desire or every murderous intention was manifested in this being or something yeah, like it's, it's Yeah, I know the quote you're talking about. Yeah. It's like made of knives. It's made of guns. It's made of teeth and 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 claws and all that. And that's reflected in the ship, in the planet, in all of that, in his paintings. And it's like and of course, you know, the paintings have a um I hesitate to say tender side to them, but um but but I like where you were going with that a lot, Jamie. Well, it's, it's funny you mentioned the guns because that, like you said, it shows up in his artwork, like Birth Machine, which is a sculpture that I, I think it's on his Wikipedia article, actually. It's in his uh, in the uh, the Giger Museum in Switzerland, um, which is this amazing sculptural metallic piece of like these babies getting fired out of a uh, like a, a fire, like a very realistic looking um, oh, yeah. cross section gun. It's like um, one of his more whimsical things, almost. Yeah, yeah. Right, because they have like little like uh, fighter, like, like almost like they're, yeah, like, they're cute. They got goggles or something. <laughs> yeah, right. They, they, like it seems like they're excited about it. But here's the thing with the, with the guns that I think is fascinating too is that, um, you know, like we we talk a lot about guns being a proxy for um, penises. You know, just in 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 life. And you know, I'm I'm not trying to make this into a, a political conversation, but there is a lot of you know people who talk about um, it's sort of compensating for insecurity about being sufficiently masculine or something a lot of people get into gun culture um in which might not actually be true but that's just something that people say you know a joke a cliche you know right and 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 i think but but there's something to it right which is like you know if i want to have a big long gun so that i can beat everybody down with it like there's like this inescapably phallic reference there i think and um and i i i feel like giger was really driven by a lot of by being attracted to these to these very deep sexual things and then um and then being sort of amazed by the aesthetics of them and manifesting them in really fascinating ways. I had a question for you, Madge, actually, that, that I, I didn't get to ask you that I was going to and I forgot about. You mentioned, a, like, a long time ago that one of the things that you first think of when you see a piece by Giger is tactile. And so but I want both of you to answer this. Um, yeah. We'll go with Madge first because he's the one that brought it up. What does it feel like to you? I brought up some of the materials before, and I think it's, it's real world materials you can find on earth and i think this comes from his his architecture training and his industrial and interior design training like i see silicone i see steel i see iron i see plastic you know i see um like uh, brushed aluminum sometimes and and human skin uh um latex you know um a lot of that stuff but like let me let me ask you this is it hot or is it cold oh it's always cold is it is it dry or is it wet? <laughs> Depending. And you know what? I I want to I gotta I gotta self correct a little bit. There are certain things in there that just look like weird, amorphous kind of jelly bag, smoky things that you're like, well, is that solid or is that a liquid? Like, what is that? And um, but it, it's yeah. I'm gonna say it's always cold. That's cool. I've never thought about the temperature. Yeah. I, I, well, I'm, I'm thinking, well, Jamie. I bet you have some cool stuff to say about this. If you could touch a Geeker painting, what would it feel like to you? Um. It would be hard and soft, and it would also be like a, an engine, steamy and hot. Um, so hot. Yeah. True. Uh, there is a lot of steam. I didn't really, yeah, that's a good point. 
Well, there is like actually like this borderline. St- I mean, even in Birth Machine, which I pulled up now to to make sure it was. It is actually on this Wikipedia article. It has a very steampunk look to it. Actually, it's funny you're saying steam is like it also just aesthetically is there too. Um, see, for me, it's cold, but it's supple, and that's something that you like mm-hmm. never encounter in nature. But it's right. Like every time something is like supple, we think of it as like warm. We think of it as sort of like our natural body temperature. You know, we think of it. We think of you know. Uh, of like a loving caress or we think of you know a beautiful plant or something something that when you touch it it feels like it it's um it responds to your to your touch with giger i feel that when i look at it but it's cold and i think that is another sort of uncanniness that makes his aesthetic work really well is that again it 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 appeals to things that i have a context for you know like i can i can i can i can picture what it would feel like but what it feels like is nothing i've ever felt before and I think that's another example of this sort of like otherworldly quality that he was able to to manifest. Um, I, do you think it's otherworldly though? Like I don't know. I mean, of course, we all have different descriptors, but uh, I would say I, I don't think it's otherworldly. I think it's almost like um, it's almost like a it's almost like hell in a way. Like Whatever the, I don't believe the pit the the pit of reality or something. Yeah, like I don't believe in hell, but I I. It's it's this thing where like you're you're being you're indulging your 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 all of your desires and uh, it's dangerous like there's an element of danger to it like uh, yeah it's hard to even describe like well, it's, let me, but it's 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 arousing it's some of it's the, aroused me before and the way he weaves it together it really it has an authenticity that makes more sense than even like and you know it was a, another great artist but not to like uh, downplay his work but like someone like Clive Barker you know like it's like ooh the the violence and the sex and all that but it everything's so overt and everything's just like very to the point and and like something you've seen maybe in the real world but with gear it's just it's it's not it's like something you've never seen yes and there's something there that I want to touch on but and I was just about to say something else and I fucking forgot it hang on hang on we were talking about oh oh yeah I want to correct myself so Jamie you're right I I, I don't actually mean otherworldly although sometimes like literally just an LV426 it is but it's actually not otherworldly it's innerworldly it's it's Ooh. like it's like a it's like a Martian landscape that exists in, inside myself that I have never actually mapped, but it's but it's there. So it's familiar, but it's completely foreign at the same time. But it's something I know. It's something I recognize, but I don't know from where. It's like a dream I had before I was alive. That's what it feels like. Um, the so uh, in terms of Clive Barker as an example, who you know is an amazing artist in his own right and has done great film work, obviously, and is a really good horror novelist and a fantasy dude. Um, I think you're right, Maj, about how the literalism or, or like the, the straightforwardness of the violence in his art, even though it can be terrifying. I mean, I remember seeing like the, I think it was McFarlane oh, toys yeah. used to put out those like sculptures based on his creations that he would like co-design, you know, and like, they're really scary. Like they're, you know, they're J- Jamie, do you know what I'm talking about? Have you seen these? You're talking about the McFarlane toys or the Giger toys? No, I'm talking about, so so, so Clive Barker. I mean Clive Barker. I'm sorry. I'm right. Sorry. I, I think I, no, I think I do it was. I think it was McFarland Toys. They put out like this line of like little sculpts that he designed that used to scare the shit out of me as a kid because they were always like grouped with the alien figures when I would go shopping places and I would like have to get past them. Um, and you know, it's people who were like degloved or people who are on a torture rack or people who are burning. You know, it's 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 like very frightening in a very kind of quick way. But the difference with somebody like Barker. Is that I see the violence as something that is 
uh, off-putting, but something that I can recognize as violence. And because of that, I'm not perseverating on it and staying up all night wondering what I saw. I know what I saw. I saw pain, right? When I look at right. Giger's work, I don't really know what I'm looking at. I know I know enough about it to, to not be able to stop looking at it, but because I can never quite reconcile everything, I'm sort of always coming back to the same question. Something that, Madge, you, you emailed us about recently, a film that all three of us are in love with is Annihilation. And I think part of why Annihilation works so well as a book and a film is because everything is so at once recognizable and also simultaneously unrecognizable that we can't close the loop. Like, we can't figure out what exactly is going on. And because of that, our brains are always trying to. Like, we keep cycling. never quite finished thinking about it and so we, we never want to stop because we want to figure it out that's the thing and that's why i think it also it does look like you know for lack of a better term hell because everything in a giger piece looks like it's eons old like it like it didn't have a beginning like it and if it did have a beginning it was probably horrifying and it was engineered by by you know very ill uh intent and means but like it everything about it just looks like old gods or something it just looks very um like pre everything you know it definitely looks older than us and there, there's always that like haze over everything that it just makes you wonder uh what surrounds it that's kind of that's another thing that i i've, I've found with his work since i was young i i always want to see beyond the frame like I can see that it goes out like a fractal or something, but like, what is beyond? Like, is there more? Is there another figure just like this or like, you know? And there's parts of his work or pieces of his work that feature rams and pentagrams and stuff that is uh, synonymously satanic, quote unquote. What was the um, first satanic, thing you said? Rams? Uh, rams, like rams. Like oh, goats, like the animal. Rams. Oh, okay. I don't know yeah. if it's like a term. Okay. Um, and uh, and those are synonymous with like satanic worship and those types of things. And so it kind of muddies the water where some of the stuff where it might just be sexual and uh, biomechanical and you're like, oh, this is weird, but it's whatever. But then he sort of crossed over into the literal like, oh, this is satanic. Uh, not that to me it's satanic, but people, the wrong people looking at that, it is that his images would say, okay, this is, this shit is evil, you know? Um, and they would just kind of write it off. And I think that type of imagery in his work did his work a disservice. I think he's, his work is better. Uh, and I may think that's why the alien works so well, because it's, it's not, it's nondescript. Uh, it does, it looks sort of phallic, but it isn't. Um, and yet, you know, I, there's just so many different things happening. It, it's got arms and legs like we have, yet it's got like a human-looking skull underneath that big long dome. Um, it's we don't know what it what it is. Is it you know? Is it's the worst of us that's come from us? Um, it's it's crazy. Yeah, it's not derivative of anything. It's not Baphomet or whatever. It's not triggering any thoughts about other people's work it's just something that you're marveling at and being like god how did anyone come up with this yeah yeah and i think part of part of what why it feels sort of like we want to look beyond the edges of the frame so much is because it in a way especially his airbrush work which of course he pivoted away from in his later career um to to other 
you know, means of producing art. But but the art that we see of his, the stuff that really made him famous, is largely from the 70s and the 80s, and that was airbrush-based. And it's very monochrome. And and I, I don't mean monochrome like it's all one color, so it's not quite monochrome, but it's it's gradations of one palette. You know, it's almost always silver and black. And so because of that, it feels like it occupies some sort of a larger world where everything is interconnected and color doesn't exist. It feels like something where if you were to put all of his work together, it would form some giant, you know, piece. But of, of course it doesn't. But it feels like it's all from the same, you know, landscape, I think. Which, of course, you see brought to, like, the ultimate fruition on the set. Um, I, had, I had a quick little passage I wanted to read again, if that's okay with you guys. Because um, I, I think, uh, you know, before we close, I want to talk a little bit about some of the other things that he did on set as well, because... Um, of course, you know, we get so fixated on the, on the alien because we're all obsessed with it and because it's the foundation of, you know, a lot of things in our franchise. But, but of course, his work extended well beyond that, including the, basically everything that you see in the derelict. And, and not only was it, uh, designed by him, but he made it. He sculpted it. He sourced the bones for it. And, and this is a guy who, like, again, you have to put him, put yourself in his shoes. The thing I'm going to read from you is from July of 1978. So that's, not not even nearly a year after that initial thing where O'Bannon had sent him this, you know, story treatment and and he was like, Oh, I'm gonna go to Hollywood and be a you know, I'm gonna get into films and I'm gonna do it and well, you know, and I'm gonna fly to England and I'm gonna see what they say. Like, it's been a matter of months since then, and he's already in the trenches of the derelict trying to make this fucking crazy set work, which I, I think is 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 the greatest set ever created for a film, personally. I think I think that what they did at Shepard and Studios, um Although the Nostromo obviously is is similarly almost peerless in terms of design, I think that the the interior of the derelict is like one of the most unique and fascinating and all encompassing artistic statements ever put to film. So I want to read just a couple of sentences from his diary. This is from July sixth of nineteen seventy eight. He wrote this in Shepard and Studios. He said, "While most of the and this is when he was working on the egg chamber, which he called the egg silo." He says. While most of the sets I've painted here have either been altered to save money or scrapped altogether, I am continually being assured that the egg silo will really be left in its original form and fully fitted out. At that at that time, I was finishing off the design for the set in my unroofed studio box on stage B. I had discussed this with Scott, and he knew pretty well what he wanted. Uh, he had always liked my entrance passage to the cockpit, which is the the thing with the two holes. Um, and since that had, after all, not been produced in that form, he wanted something of the same sort for the egg silo. The interior of the egg silo, which now forms a circular container, is divided into segments of equal size by rods running from the top of the wall to the midpoint of the floor, and each segment is filled with eggs. I'm in the I'm in the middle of my work when O'Bannon and Carol come into the studio to see how my omelet <laughs> is getting on. They praise my work very highly again, but it sounds suspicious to me, and I'm on my guard. So he's already, at this point, a, a matter of a few months later, completely fucking disenchanted <laughs> with the Hollywood process and feeling like everybody's double-talking. Um, he goes on later to say... Uh, when I don't like anything, you can see it at once from the expression on my face. I suppose I'm not polite enough, or not enough of a strategist to play the game. Scott's tactics are quite different. Interesting, he says, and I know at once that what he really means is shit. <laughs> so it's like he's constantly, he's like, what am I doing here? He's such a fish out of water. Um, but if, what's amazing is the art that came out of that was just unlike anything else. I I, I want to turn it back to you guys. Uh, what are your thoughts on some of the other things that he created for the film? Um, especially the the sets that he made. Um, something that jumps out at me is the 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 repetition of um of shapes, and I feel like that's something that's very natural. It has 
it's something we see in nature. A tree is covered in leaves that all look the same, stuff like that. And just like um, that kind of ribbing on the walls or whatever that's that's very um, present in a lot of his, his works and, of course, you know, an alien. Um, that that stuff, yeah, it just has an authenticity to it. It just looks like that that is another extension of the biomechanical thing because some people, you know, like to say that derelict is alive. You know, it does have, like, a, a life force to it even though it's a machine. And I think that just sells everywhere you look in that and it has that kind of that kind of weird sheen from the the slime in it too which is great yeah uh i would say the the inside of the derelict and uh the repetition where it's it's almost like honeycomb where you know when bees are creating their 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 nests uh or their what do you call those things hive uh Uh, their hives yes it's all repetition um, over and over and it looks perfect you go up to a little bit and you can see a little bit of differences but they're all yes. the same hexagonal shapes and so it sells it it makes it look legitimately real and uh that's you know certainly but then in mixed in with all of that is of course you still have like vaginal openings um and uh you know the eggs which kind of look vaginal um the openings of the top um and so you kind of have all of that going on and it's like well what is this what are we looking at and then you have the you know obviously the space jockey which is very uh looks like bones or it is bones you know i still say it is bones i don't give a shit what happened in prometheus um but uh yeah i i just think it it, i like you said patrick in the beginning i've never seen uh, a set like that there has never been a set like that that uh, has been so authentic and all a lot of that is also a tribute to the practical effects that they use building all that stuff in three dimension whether it's in miniature or whether that's full scale and shooting it the way that they did lighting it the way that they did it sold it uh, it looked like a legitimate planet even the planets we've seen in our real waking world haven't never looked like that um, whether it's Mars or all any other any of the other planets that um, have you know we've seen, you know, images of, it's just, it's wholly authentic. And, uh, it, yeah, it's, but at the same time, it seems like there's something insidious on that planet. Um, it's just, it's almost like the antithesis of the garden of Eden where, uh, you know, it's the garden of Eden is this beautiful, like Shangri-La with all these trees and all this shit, you know, for made for two people, you know, in terms of the mythology. And you have this planet that's, a, a version of that it's almost like the anti-garden of eden and you know then there's a warning saying stay away almost which reminds me of like 2010 which uh i remember the last part of 2010 there's a um a, a warning coming off from the planet saying uh you may set you may set down on every planet except for europa this planet is mine and i almost feel like that Ooh. is um what the the warning was coming out of from the derelict, like don't sit down here. Don't come here. You're not welcome here. This isn't for you. Um, it was like sending out a warning, but humans, uh, much like kind of, again, the mythology of Adam and Eve, what is it? Let's go. Let's go. Let's see. Oh, let's look. Let's open. Let's take the fruit. Um, not seeing any of the warning signs because we want to know because we want knowledge. Um, it's very and we all we all take the fruit looking at his art and staring and feeling weird about it. If there was a whole world, I think we'd all be getting out of the ship and 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 going and stuff. And we're talking about the three D, um, three D. Now you know I don't mean artificial three D. I mean the actual sets that were built. We're talking about that, but 
that sequence contains two of the greatest like matte paintings ever in a movie. One of the derelict yep. when they finally just look it would boom, the reveal of the derelict um, on the mountain. And then the egg room that is just like this, you know, the, it's so massive. I love that. Cause every, every, uh, corridor they're in after they before when they first enter the ship you know it's not that much bigger than the nostromo it's like a normal hallway kind of and then they hit that and you hear kane's voice like oh there's something down here and then they boom a big that huge shot it's it's a stunner and you've never seen even in prometheus or covenant when they go into the the room with in covenant or i'm sorry in prometheus when they go into the room with all the vases or the whatever you call those things um the room looks relatively small. They have not, we have not seen the scale of alien since alien. I mean, arguably, I guess maybe the jockey, there's the, uh, the room where the engineer gets on the ship and that's relatively big, but it still feels small in scope compared to alien. Alien just feels huge. And none of the films since that film has felt that big or looked that big. And the reason it just keeps on selling and you're just so invested every time is cause like, their reactions are, you know, they don't give too much. Oh my God, what is this? Asking a bunch of needless questions because they're, you know, they're in a movie. They don't need to ask questions. But the, just like the one simple line, just throwaway line, Dallas says, um, it looks like it's growing out of the chair. And that's it. They don't even, they don't go into yeah. it. Yeah. And then you're left to think about yeah. it. And those set pieces, and Patrick and I have discussed this before. We've discussed this with other people. Those set pieces were given time to breathe and not just time to breathe. I mean, minutes on end where and and the the score really uh kind of uh accentuated this idea that you're in this vast nothingness or this vast ship whereas in other films you just don't get any of that so you don't get any any sense of space or time because it's moving right through it whereas an alien they're like no you're going to sit in this in this space jockey room for a little bit you're going to sit in this egg chamber you're going to see Kane dangling on this on this rope um, with the matte painting in the egg room and it's going to feel like it's 10 football fields. Um, and they give that time to breathe. And, uh, certainly it's because of Geiger's design or Geiger's design. Sorry. Um, but it's also because of the patience. And I think part of it too is, is from a practical standpoint, the, the reality is, is like they, they could not move quickly because it took so long to produce those sets and they were so massive and so involved that they were limited. And this is something else that we've talked about a lot and I don't want to preach about, but I, I really truly feel like a lot of popular filmmaking is losing touch of the beauty of limitation. And I think as much as we love MCU movies and I fucking love MCU movies, I, I think, you know, for, I think about the sets in Dr. Strange, which, which are incredible, but entirely digital. And I think about, you know, when he's encountering Dormammu and it's that really massive um, set and why I don't feel any sense of actual wonder when I look at it, even though like I, I feel like I should because it's it's so extraordinary. And I think it's because there's no limitations because it's so it's so beautifully done, but it's digital that they can shoot it as many times as they want to from any angle they can imagine, and it can be deployed really quickly. And I think um, what was amazing is that, for example, when you see the space jockey and you see the the navigation room that he's sitting in, which is just so incredible, like. There's you know, only half of it was made, obviously, and the half that was made is one of the largest pieces of art ever made for a film. You know, it's it's like a three-story sculpture and um, done by a guy who had no film experience figuring out how latex would mix under the hot lights of a practically lit set 
um, in real time and working under the pressure of having Ridley Scott breathing down his neck um, and not knowing what the hell was going on, barely speaking the language that everybody on set was speaking and being kind of an outsider. And he talks a lot about that in his diaries about how he felt like an outsider during it. And, um, and because of that, there was a very specific limit to how much could be produced in terms of visuals for this film. And so we, we talk a lot about Scott being such a brilliant visual stylist and, and I stand by that wholeheartedly. I think he's one of the best ever to, to, you know, shoot a film. Um, Part of the slowness and the deliberateness, the, the deliberateness of his style came from the simple practical consideration of they only had a certain amount of things to show. And so you can show those things really artfully and put a lot of work into it, knowing that you don't have infinite options. You have one amazing thing to shoot, and you're going to shoot the fuck out of it, but it's going to be that one thing. And Robert Frost, I think, said um, he was asked, like, you know, how do you feel about um, free verse poetry? He was like, I, I have no interest. It's like playing tennis without a net. And I was like, wow, <laughs> I'm a firm believer in limitations too. I wanted to ask you something, Jamie. Um, so the first time or the first few times you saw Alien, was it pre-internet? Definitely. Okay. So like, did you go? It was 1837. It was 1837. So, <laughs> so Jamie was going to go fight for the North. And, um, <laughs> but, uh, um, did you, did you go seek out like the Necronomicon or did you want to? Well, you know? yes. Like after I saw alien and I, you know, and then aliens, I would go to like borders books and music and tower records and I would look and I felt like opening up Geeger's books was like opening up a porno almost like I felt like yeah. I shouldn't be doing it. Um, but I needed to know more. I needed to see more of this guy's work and it just, it almost felt wrong. Like I knew I shouldn't be looking at it like, because because penis, because vagina, you know, um, and it's all over. Um, but yeah, I, I sought it out all the time just because I wanted to kind of understand more of what I couldn't, what what I wasn't understanding. What of course it didn't provide any understanding. Although aside from reading what Giger was saying, was like you know I just paint from my fantasy, you know, and I didn't know what that meant. Um, yeah, I, I had to. I, that thought was in my head. I was like, oh man, the mystique of. Not even being able to look the guy up and learn everything about him like you could now must have must have you know really drawn you in. It's no wonder that like you know it it's remained you know such a like a permeating thought and you know such a love uh, for the movies. Yeah, well, I think by the time I was exposed to when I first saw Aliens, I was twelve. Um, well, yeah. And then by the time I saw Alien, I was uh, in high school. And so when I started to wonder about all that stuff, I could go to the I, – I, well, number one, go to the library. And the books on Giger were huge, like very large coffee table books. And I could never buy it. I could check it out. But I couldn't check it out because I'd get in trouble. So I'd have to just go to the bookstore and just peruse it and look through it. Um, but, yeah, wow. it wasn't as available as, like, it is now for sure. But um, I just, you know – I knew I had to find more, so it was kind of like a mystery. I think, uh, you know, as we wrap, I, I, I just, I feel like Part of the enduring legacy of Giger's work and part of the enduring legacy of Alien is that um, it suggests things that we're not 
ready to see and yet we can't turn away from. And I think um, I think Giger was kind of aware of that as he was doing it. There's a great quote that um, Dan O'Bannon relayed where um, Giger told him, uh, he says, I am afraid of my visions. And O'Bannon says, it's just your mind. And Giger responds, that is what I'm afraid of. And I think that kind of says it all. But That's I do good. think, uh, I think we'd be kidding ourselves to if we thought Giger was fine um, and Giger wasn't dealing with some big issues. I mean, I think that from what I, you know, I've seen the documentary on him. He had a very, very difficult childhood. Um, and I think that there were some things going on with him that maybe his art was helping him deal with, but I don't think he completely dealt with because most assuredly that's, I don't, normal is, normal is a myth. There's no such thing as normal. Um, there's standardized ways that people behave, ways that people, you know, should behave, I suppose. Um, but there was clearly some stuff going on in Giger's head that needed uh, to be addressed, as we could see, which is evident or evidenced in his work. Um, so it would be fascinating to kind of read a, a, a psychological profile on him um, to see maybe what that what those things were um, and really which might explain what we're seeing on. Because I think it's easy. You can't separate the art from the artist. Like oftentimes the art, you know, artists express what's in their heart. Um, and I, I, I would argue with anyone to say that, that what we're seeing from Giger isn't dark. It's dark shit. It's dark, disturbing shit. Um, and yes, there's elements of beauty to it, but it's dark. Um, and There's uh, some that are just, yeah, just completely chilling where you're like, oh, that just that looks like something that should never happen. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, you know, it worked for Alien. I mean, certainly, like, and even in terms of the beast, um, there is, you know, we've seen so many movies since Alien, like, even, like, movies, more recent movies, like the, uh, what's that, oh, uh, what's that movie that uh, takes place in New York and all these college-age kids are at a party? Um, it's produced by J.J. Abrams. Clo- Chronicle? Cloverfield. Oh, Cloverfield. Oh, yeah. um, or Chronicle. I don't know. Uh, not Chronicle. Chronicle yeah, doesn't yeah, Clo- have any. Uh, Cloverfield. Yeah. But uh, Cloverfield, you know, you have beasts and monsters in there, and they're not scary. Um, and you – I've never seen a creature as scary as the alien. Um, I've never seen anything – I've never seen anyone come up with anything as remotely as scary as the alien. In fact, I've always been interested – can someone come up with a creature that's as, as scary or scarier than the xenomorph? And I've never seen it. I genuinely um, don't think that they could. I, I think that I, the gulf between the xenomorph and anything else created, and, and I say that as like a fucking huge monster movie person, I, there's not even, it's not even close. Because everything else is, you, you look at it and you have some context for being afraid of it. And the alien, you just don't, the alien, you just look at it and you just keep looking at it, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. It, it's a creature that, uh, and I actually, the, as we, as we close, I, I, I do think like what Geiger's design or sorry, I always, I, I revert to Geiger because <laughs> that's how, that's how I grew up saying his name until, you know, Geiger's design of the alien, um, his, his original design, which you see in alien and you see in aliens, um, and portions of it in alien three, like the rod puppet, you can look at it and you can stare and stare and stare and just see new things and see new things and like just see where those tubes lead. And it just, it's an endless kind of maze on the, on the structure of the, of the Xeno. Um, but when the design has been really fucked with and, 
uh, almost eviscerated as you know you get to aliens and it just looks like globs it just looks like globs mushy like fleshy globs on these creatures and they're cast in black um so you can't see any detail um and it really started to move away from the beautiful detail that giger created um and i think the great things about the the prequels is that it really brought that detail back um and so i think really uh it's a testament that uh hopefully in in films to come uh there's a real reversion back to giger's original ideas and uh, intricacies of of what the Xeno looks like, um, because I, I think since Alien Three, I mean, just the the monster has just been has digressed into kind of same kind of architecture, but just bl- like kind of a blob, you know. And the feet were changed, and the arms were changed, and it just looked weird. Um, so I, I just he's he's a genius, and I've never seen his equal. Exactly, it, and um, it just poured out of him. And one of the things that um, I wanted to touch on earlier, but we didn't get a chance to, I just want to get in here before we wrap up, is um, is that we talked a bit before we started about how he, uh, according to his contemporary, he did no pre-visualization. Most people, most artists, if they're going to do a giant piece that's highly detailed, they sketch it, they do a small one, they do a big one, whatever, there's iterations, but he would just you know, bang on the airbrush and, and, and start going and then just create. And it makes sense when you look at his work, cause everything just kind of flows from one idea to the other, much like a dream, much like a dream state or a flow state. And, you know, you guys are both creators, Patrick's a musician, Jamie, you're a writer. You guys, I'm sure both know about when you're in the flow state, when you're 10 seconds ahead of yourself and you're just, it's just coming and you're just channeling it. And I find it fascinating that if you're that deep in, uh, in your subconscious, in your brain, and he he could access that. And thankfully for him, and luckily enough for us, his skill level could match his id. So when he would access his id um, and his raw impulses, impulsivity of the artwork he wanted to create, it it linked back to these things that are childhood, you know, fascinations and fears. Like by and large. For children, sex is a mystery and it's terrifying, especially if 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 you you know glance across something or whatever. It um you know it frightens you and of course death. And I find it really fascinating that Giger's <clears throat> early fears as a child were one of them was overpopulation, which I find fascinating because that scared me as a kid thinking about it. But now we have so many other fears in the world that I don't think about it as much. But I remember thinking that like, oh my God, it's totally true. We're only we're only uh, increasing. We're gonna have too many people for the earth. It's gonna be overcrowded, and and that was a huge fear of his. And how does overpopulation come? Sex. And another thing he was afraid of was worms and uh, corpses uh, being eaten by worms. He tells a story that. One Easter, he had to look over his grandmother's grave with his mother, and for some reason, I guess they had to move some dirt to to fix it up, and he turned over some earth, and, and a giant worm came crawling and wriggling out of the dirt, and it completely freaked him out, and he dropped the shovel and ran away because he thought it was a part of his grandmother's eating his grandmother. And he even said that a lot of the, the imagery of worms manifests itself as tubes and pipes in his art. So it's like he is dealing with those fears from childhood and the things that really mess him up. And it's almost like by embracing his id, he conquers those fears and he and he helps us confront those things that freak us out by channeling that uh, that base feeling. And it's like he 
and he allows us all to to triumph over those things and accept them and and look them in the face and and see the beauty and the horror in them which is which is like as human as it gets and one last final fun fact from what i've seen <laughs> in this documentaries he listened to a lot of really chill groovy funky music when he did it <laughs> which is like really <laughs> Really surprising to me. It was like um, they had the footage. It was like a first-person perspective. They must have put the camera in front of his chest or something of him like unsleeving a record and putting it down on the platter. And it was a Ronnie Laws record that I own that is like some smooth love and jazz. And I was like, oh, my <laughs> God, that's so cool. And um, so, yeah, Giger's awesome. What What more is there to say, really? Yeah, seriously. Yeah. And I know we could probably talk – I mean, I think Patrick and I are discussing like there's so there's so many layers to certainly his work, but even what his work represents and what Alien represents um, to to men, to women, um, and that's a whole probably another episode that we're going to have. But I think that's a great place to wrap. Thank you guys so much for coming on. Thank you, Maj, for coming on and being oh, our guest. Gosh. Thank you. For that was awesome. Me. Thanks for being prepared. Uh, we'd love to have you on again at some point. That would be awesome. I would absolutely love it. Feel happy, guys. <laughs> That's awesome. Thanks, guys. For more on Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please visit perfectorganism.com. Perfect Organism is available for listen or download through Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you'd like to support the show, please visit perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.